Okay, for this session, here's how it's going to work. I'm going to break it down into two parts. We're going to do the first part because it's got a lot of church history connected to it. If you're a fan of church history, you'll like what I say. If you're not, gee, I'm sorry, but we'll do it anyway. So I'm going to give you the first part of it, church history, and and then we're going to take a break, come back, and then finish up the second part of it, and then have a little bit of time afterwards. They always say to take a few moments to have Q&A. So if you have any questions you want to ask me about anything I've said, anything I am, my family, what we do or something, I'll be glad to try to answer some questions for you. And we'll let you out of here early. I can't imagine you having enough questions to last for 45 minutes. That's how much they allow. If they do, we'll take 45 minutes. But I just don't know if I have enough answers for 45 minutes. So we'll see how that rolls and that'll be fine. Okay. Okay, here we go. This is, uh, this is from, when I talk about this is my story, part of my story is wanting to learn about church history. I told you last night it's about wanting to learn about prophecy, and I've been kind of a student of that, and I've been kind of a student of church history for a good while, and they asked me to share something today about the next subject I'm going to show you, and here's what it is. It's going to be called this, the true gospel, and so we're going to see some things that are true about the gospel and some things that have been, well kind of watered down, maybe not quite as accurate as they used to be in church history over here with that X, and but yet a lot of people still have vacillated back and forth and don't know exactly why they believe what they do, and so we're going to try to give you a little history of today of why we're here, how did we get here as Christian people in our churches, wherever it is that you attend, and I hope it's a helpful thing to you this morning, okay? So one of the most amazing things about Jesus' followers is right before his death and his resurrection, he said this to his guys. He said, I tell you the truth, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, when he used the first name, Peter, that's the Greek word for a little pebble. You're a little pebble, Peter. And then he said, upon this rock, I think he's speaking of himself as Jesus. It's a, it's a giant boulder. That's the word there. It's a different Greek word altogether. And so it's using that. So he says, Peter, you're a little rock, and on me, this big rock, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. So this all began at Pentecost after Jesus rose, and then Pentecost came, and in the book of Acts, we had 3,000 new believers They got saved, they got baptized, and they needed to meet together, and they started sharing meals together, and they started learning from each other and following Jesus in this new way of what we call and still are today the New Testament church. We're sitting here today because of what happened back then. That was the start of all of it, that's why we're still here and why we go to church. Now, there's approximately a few more in this, I know, but there's approximately 15 major denominations that kind of differ on a lot of things like baptism and a lot of other things we're going to be talking about. But there's a lot of different ones who believe a little bit differently about things. And then that's the Protestant denomination. And then there's the Roman Catholic Church. We'll get a little bit of study today on how this thing all started. It all started with the Catholic Church. And that became the Protestant Church that most of us are in today, or I would assume in this camp. This camp kind of is a Protestant camp. And so we'll talk a little bit about that too. Now, here's what's true, I think. Most people, if you've ever grown, how many of you didn't really grow up in any church whatsoever until later in your life? Let me see your hands. You didn't really grow up in, okay, a few. So the rest of you grew up in some kind of church. Did you find that you mostly gravitated toward the same kind of church you were, grow, you were raised in? 
and you kind of continued in that? How many would say that was kind of been true for me? At some part, in some part of your life, you did that. Let me see your hands. I did. I was raised in an independent Baptist fundamental church. And when I got out of school, guess what I was a part of? Independent Baptist fundamental church. That's all I'd ever known. That's all I'd ever been. And so I was like, that's the way I was taught. And I followed right in the footsteps. My father was a Baptist preacher. I followed right into his footsteps, okay? And so most people are like that. Now, I'm not in that particular denomination today. I've made changes in my own thinking, theology and stuff, and a little bit different type of a church, and that's okay. And some of you made some changes and shifts as well. So we're gonna kind of look at all that kind of stuff because here's what's true. You can be a saved, born-again follower of Jesus in any of those denominations on that picture. You can. However, maybe you're in one of those denominations that's strayed a little bit from maybe what the Bible really teaches, and they've stretched it a little bit or don't believe exactly what maybe Scripture says. And so if that's true, it may not be the best place for you to grow in your faith, the best place for you to be. That's, that's between you and God. You can make that decision. But here's what Jesus said. He said, the wheat and the tares are going to grow up together. What was he talking about when he made that analogy? He's talking about believers. There's going to be true believers, the wheat, and there's going to be people that aren't believers at all that are the tares. And guess what? Every church has wheat and tares in it. What does that mean? Not my church. I go to XYZ church and we're all wheat. Well, I don't know that you all are. Uh, there's usually some people that go to church for the wrong reasons. Just to check off a box, they've never really got saved. They never really, they just think, here's what most people think. If I go to church and do enough good things, I'll have favor with God, so I'll just go. A lot of them go to church where I live on Christmas and Easter. We used to have the biggest crowds ever in our churches on Christmas and Easter. They think that that's all they need to do. At least show up occasionally, and, uh, but there's wheat and tares in every church. Every church has people that need to be saved, need to be born again, and most churches that are biblical churches are pretty full of people that are already saved. And so that's just kind of what I, I sense and I kind of seem to think. Now, James was the first pastor of the New Testament church in Jerusalem. And so after the new church began to spread out and they began to start and plant these new things called churches where they would get together, they would teach, they would take up offerings to care for the poor within their midst and they would have meals together and they would grow together in their newfound faith. They would learn to understand and talk about who Jesus was. When this was all happening then, the faith spread throughout the Roman Empire for Paul and Peter for about centuries one, two, and three. And so for those first three centuries, it was kind of spreading throughout the entire Roman Empire. But something happened that changed everything about all of these churches, and that is when the head emperor of Rome decided he was going to become a Christian. And then when he decided that, he now made all of those other churches under him have to go and do church like he said they should. So all of a sudden, things got mixed up a little bit. You had all these people that were having strong little churches, home churches, and different types of gatherings going on like that have to do what Rome was telling them to do. And this happened in 313 AD. This guy's name was Constantine. And what he did to start these Christian churches, was he really a Christian? I don't know. He might really truly have been and just had little understanding of some things. I'm not really sure. I'm not here to judge Constantine or not. I'm not his judge or jury. But I know that what he did basically was take all of the pagan religion of Rome and he mixed it up with the Christianity of these early churches. 
and so they, he wanted to worship Jesus, but also they had 12 gods that they worshiped. And he kind of put them all into one shebang here. And so there was some error being thrown into the truth of the true church. You had worship now of Jupiter and Juno and Bacchus, the god of wine, and nine more. So here you are sitting in this church trying to be faithful in what you've been learning, and all of a sudden there's this other stuff coming into it as well that kind of mixed the whole thing up. Then they added in something called the sacraments, seven sacraments. These were things that you could do, physical things. You could see and touch and check off that you've done them. And so it all of a sudden became something that you had to do. You had to start doing certain things to be in favor with the church. And so that's where some of the air kind of slipped into this situation. And so basically that happened. They absorbed these churches. Then many, many more years, what happened is these churches began to kind of flourish and go, what was called the Roman Catholic Church at that time. Then it split, and it split into two things. Two, two, a schism happened, which meant basically now there was a difference between the clergy and the laity. That the clergy were the professional people, the pastors, the, the priests, all these people that were leading these groups, however they were, they were on the clergy side. Then on the other side, you had the laity. That means the common, average, ordinary people like me and you. And so all of a sudden, there was a great gap between these two groups. And it's interesting that the Bible says there really should be something of what I would call, it's a word I made up, which is the word claity. It really, it really ought to be that, you know, as a pastor, I'm no better than you as a layperson, and we both serve the same God, and we just have different roles to play, and your opinions are important as my, any opinion I have, and your walk with God is just as important as any walk with God I have. And so it's getting together where the pastor becomes one of the people in the congregation and loves his people. I've known pastors and known churches with pastors. As soon as the, the preaching's done, they leave. They, they go out the door, don't ever even talk to anybody. I know pastors that have bodyguards around them to protect them from people. I'm thinking, what do you need to have body? Wouldn't that be funny if I had bodyguards, Becky, around me at church? Y'all can't talk to me. I, you have to go through my bodyguard to get an appointment on Friday at 3 o'clock if you want to talk to me. Well, that'd be great, wouldn't it? That, that'd really make people feel welcome in a church. But yet... <laughs> They split. Back during this time, you had the clergy and you had the laity. And the laity at this time were trying to read the Bible in their own language. And the people that were the, the, the priests in the, in, the, in the clergy side, they didn't want them reading the Bible in their own language. And it's, it's hard to believe this is true. But in 1516, they even burned people at the stake for trying to translate the Bible into their own language of the people. That just shows you when you start down a slippery slope regarding God and his word and his truth, all of a sudden you can go way off the deep end with things you would have maybe thought you would never see happen, but they did. And that was a sad time in the history of the church, very, very sad. And then they started kind of thinking, well, we'll just hold salvation kind of hostage. We, the priests, we can tell them what the Bible says. They don't need to read it for themselves. We'll tell them what's going on here. And that's kind of what happened. And then they started creating things that are nowhere found in Scripture, like one of them was 40 days of Lent. And you say, what is that? That's not anywhere in the Bible. But basically for Christ followers today, if you want to even do something like this, it's, it's not a reason you can't. It's a season of reflection, renewal, and preparation. If you want to prepare your heart before Easter by not doing something or having a special time of fasting or something like that before, have fun. If that's what God leads you to do, no problem. 
It's nowhere taught in the scripture that we should do this or even talk about it anywhere in the scripture. But in, in the Catholic denomination, it's very, very serious that they do this. Everybody has to do this. It's one of the things you kind of have to do. Now, when you start thinking about it, I'm going to tell you where it came from. In the Old Testament, there was a man named Nimrod. This was the time when the Tower of Babel was going to be built. And he had a wife named Semiramis and a son named Tammuz. And they were worshipped here as a mother and son. And this idea of mother and son was something that started being found. You found traces of the same thing in all kind of cultures that are in the world back in history during that particular time and earlier and later on. For example, here's the list of some of them. There was Ishtar and Tammuz in Assyria, Ashtaroth and Baal in Phoenicia, Isis and Horus in Egypt, Aphrodite and Eros in Greece, and Venice and Cupid in Rome. So you had this same mother-son kind of a, a, a thing going on here. And some of these, that's where the Roman, the Roman part of the paganism kind of bled into Christianity in the early church. And this is the things that started taking place. Most of them have a story in them about the son dying and after 40 days, they come back to life. And so that's kind of this story that's going on. Now, it's sad about this, but the true children of Israel, the, two, the true Jews that had become believers back in the Old Testament days, even in Jeremiah 44 and Ezekiel 8 and stuff like that, they started worshiping paganism and going against true, the true God, Jehovah, with they had belief of the queen of heaven in their own worship in Israel, the mother and son idea. And the idea was 40 days of mourning for this mother who lost this son. And so even God's people in the past had gone through a similar thing like this. But the Roman Catholic Church then took candles and beads and headdresses, and the Pontifex Maximus became the Pope. And what they ultimately wanted to do, and still seem to want to do today, is to do this. They want to have a bridge to build between all religious groups and you hear the, what an ecumenical movement simply means is that all these different denominations who believe different things come together in some way to get along and to have a common goal or mission. And so Roman Catholics would love, love to do this. And so you see things in situations where there's a, a Catholic church built and you see a mosque built here and you see a Protestant church built here and they have that in Saudi Arabia. Where did you, who was telling me that? Did you tell me about that, Rich? No, that, I, I saw a picture of that where these three different denominations over in that country are being built. Why? So they can, they can do stuff together. And so that was part of what's going on. And one day, I think it will be a one-day world religion under Antichrist. Not there yet. We're not there yet, something like that. But when you look at the Catholic faith, what it really is talking about is faith plus works equals salvation. That's, I think, where they went off the train a little bit, where they went wrong. And we'll talk about why that's true. Here's when it happened. There was a thing called the Council of Trent when they got together with all of their priests and the Pope and everybody and the Catholic leaders. And this was in 1545. And here's exactly what they said. If you believe in faith alone, let him be anathema, which is the word meaning damned forever. So they said faith is important and works is absolutely as important. And if you're not doing enough, and you think it's faith alone, that's not going to save you. And to me, Roman Catholicism is sometimes called a plus religion. And I'm just going to show you on the screen some of the things that they add to some of the things that I believe God wants us to have alone. You know the song, In Christ Alone? <laughs> that's the truth. Watch this. Here we go. They said, now you need faith plus works. 
works were doing the right things and good deeds to earn favor with God. They say you need grace, yes, plus merit. Merit is the quality of being particularly good or noteworthy so you can receive praise for a reward for how you act and how you live. They say that. And then there's Christ and other mediators. You have to confess to a priest. And when you confess to a priest, he can say, I forgive you of your sins. Well, the Bible says there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Of course, we confess our sins to one another to ask each other for prayer. That's perfectly legitimate and biblical, but they don't look at it like this. Then there's scripture, which says believe plus tradition. They add the sacraments in baptism, sprinkling, the Eucharist, confirmation, the mass, going to confession, lighting candles, praying the rosary beads, other things they go through, which is a mix of some of the paganism from Rome still allowed into their new system. When you look at the works in the sacraments of what they had to do, here's kind of what they teach. When you sprinkle a baby from birth, that cleanses them, they say, of original sin all along the ways of their life until they one day stumble and start to commit sins on their own. That's called a venial sin. And heaven forbid if they ever do a mortal sin, something horrendous, which purges them and it plunges them all the way back down where they have to start over again. And they do that by penance and they have to maintain their salvation. They think if in the end of the life, my life, I have enough people praying for me and I've done enough good stuff and I've checked up enough boxes, I might make it. But they don't even think they'll make it to heaven. They think they make it to an in-between place that's simply called purgatory. And it's between there that people on my friends and relatives back home need to keep praying for me so I get out of there and then be in heaven. To do that, they say you have to put some in the past, not as much today, but in the olden times, they would have indulgences where these things would have to be, you'd have to pay money to the priest who would say that will help your relative get out of purgatory into heaven. So that's kind of the way it all started. Now, what does the Bible say? In Romans 8.1, here's what it says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we repent of our sins, you never lose your salvation. It becomes a part of who you are. Just like your <clears throat> children are born to you, they can never not be your son or daughter. They may say, I'm not your son, I'm not your daughter, but they always will be. They can do horrendous things that disappoint you greatly, but they will have always been your son or daughter. When you're born again into the kingdom of God, the Bible says nothing can pluck you out of his hand. Eternal security is something that's wonderful. It's an amazing thing that God gives us when we understand we get born into his family. My wife, Becky, has some friends of ours that are real good friends. This woman is a sweetheart. I mean, she's precious today. And, and she uh, grew up in a Catholic church. And she asked Becky one time, I just don't, how in the world can you act like you know that you're going to heaven when you die? You're sure about that. I don't, I just never have been able to be sure about that at all because she never has felt like she's done enough or worked hard enough or given enough and she's got to do all these things. And Becky tried to tell her that and explain to that. And I think she's better about that now. Don't you think she's more assured of that now? And she's in a Protestant denomination. I think it's a wonderful church and I know the pastor real well. And I believe he's helping her grow in her faith and stuff. And now that's a calm in her heart that she didn't have before. 
but I want you to be sure about your salvation. If you come to a camp like this, they ask us, share the gospel at least once, you know, with all the people that come clearly. And if they've not been sure about this thing, that they can settle this before they walk out these doors and go home. And uh, that's kind of part two of what we're going to talk about in a little bit of how you can absolutely know for sure about that because that's the most important thing at all. And you don't have to doubt about that any longer. If you've ever had a bunch of doubts and stuff, maybe you leave this camp with a new perspective about all these kinds of things. So what happened? Well, and the reformers came along, and the first reformer was named Martin Luther. He came along... <clears throat> He nailed 95 statements on a door in Wittenberg, Germany. He had been studying the scriptures so intently. He said, it looks like the Bible says clearly here, the just shall live by faith. And it looks like it's alone. And of course, when he presented that to the, his fathers and priests, they said, no, no, it's faith plus works and the stuff that we all teach and believe. And I was talking with Pastor Sean about this just a couple days ago. And he said, really, the truth is, what Martin Luther, Martin Luther wanted to do is reform the Catholic Church. He wanted it to start taking the Bible more seriously and let's trust and believe what it says about this stuff because I think we've gotten off the track. And that's what his desire was. But of course, the leaders of this massive church size now said, no, you're out of here. And they kicked him out. Then you had Calvin and Zwingli and all these guys that came along that followed him. They started taking the Bible seriously and studying it seriously and starting this idea that things are alone. Those five things, faith, grace, Christ, scripture, to the glory of God, they were all going to be alone, nothing else, plus nothing. Now, that seems to me unbelievable. It does when you think, I can be in darkness, and then when I get saved, I'm over here in the light, and no matter what I do, I can never go back there. Now, here's the thing. If we still sin and do the wrong things, we simply repent, and he forgives us of those things. But we never can be back over here the way that we were. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things become new. All of a sudden, you have a new desire to do things you never had to desire to do before, to study God's Word and to pray and to be, and have, have spiritual disciplines in your life and love people and care for people. And you see yourself growing in, over here on this side. And just like a child matures from a young baby, a baby Christian can grow up to be a teenager and a young adult and an adult. And then they can start making other babies. They can win people to Christ. It can be part of the family of God from your, your lips to them like Rich talked about. Here's what Rich told me last night. After we did the talk on prophecy, he said, of all the things you talked about, there's only one thing we can actually do of those 10 things, and that is keep winning people to Jesus. Keep sharing the gospel with people don't have it, that don't know it, like he does with those college ministries and stuff. Keep adding people to the kingdom of God until Christ comes for his bride. And so that's an amazing thing. So it does seem unbelievable. It's good news, but the unbelievability is this. He did it all. There's nothing I can do to work my way up to heaven the Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourself. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. If I could do enough stuff, I could tell you how good I was, how much I've done. I've done more than, you. I've done more than Sean, I'll guarantee you. I've talked to him this week. I've done a lot more good stuff than him. He, I'm not sure about him, but I'm better. 
we can start comparing yourself with each other and all kinds of stuff. That's not biblical. If you're born again, you're on your way to one day spending eternity with Jesus. And that's an amazing thing, growing in your faith. That's what I love about a place like this. You can spiritually accelerate the spiritual growth of your children being at a camp because they're not watching television. They're not involved on their devices as much as they are. They're spending a lot of time. We walked around yesterday when we had parent free time. That's really a misnomer in it. Parents free time. When do you ever... When is, when's the last time you, a parent, had a family, you had a minute of free, free, free time? Well, anyway, you didn't know what to do. Some of you said, what are we supposed to do? The kids are all cared for. Let's go for a walk. We walked around. Everywhere we walked on this campus, there were counselors sitting down with groups of kids, discipling those kids and, and praying for those kids and having fun with those kids and loving those kids. And those kids love your, the counselors. All of a sudden, they want to sit with them at meals, and they want to talk to them, and they want to get involved. I've got some boys with me that usually are not real responsive and singing and stuff like that. But here, when they're singing, they're dancing around, they're singing, they're clapping. They're, they're getting into it because they're watching it modeled for them here with the exuberance of the staff. And so that exuberance is what's so cool about being in a place like this. And it will, it will, is, is good works happening all, good works are happening all over these grounds. And all these little groups that are meeting and all those little babies loved by those girls that are taking care of them in those little trains, pulling them up and down the street like this. One of the people that's working with the babies told me that one special needs child was here one year and all that child wanted to do was swing. And she said, I'd put her in the swing and I'd swing her for an hour and a half. And she'd say, more, more. <laughs> Here's the counselor just doing this with that poor little girl that has to sit there and be nothing much. She can, she's just going to be swinging and that she's perfectly happy. So to see our counselors love kids like that is something that's awesome. And I love this ministry and what I've seen it do over the years. I've been associated with it. So, good works are important? Absolutely, they're important. It's just the fruit of your salvation. Look, when I got married to Becky, I didn't say this. Look, I told you when we, I got married to you that I loved you. If I ever change my mind, I will let you know. That would not have been a real happy marriage after about 30 minutes. Why do I do things for her? Why do I give her things? Why do I ask her how I can help her? Because I'm married to her. It doesn't make me more married. The more I'm going to do extra things because we really want to be married more than we are. No, we're married. We said, I do, I do, boom. And so these things continue to be happening in our relationship of what she does for me, what I do for her. It's because we're best friends, because we're married to each other. We're one in Christ. Not to make us more married, but good works are awesome. Do them all you can. Great. Better. That's why I said this thing about never resist a generous impulse. When you have a generous impulse, it's never from my flesh. You see, my flesh is not yet saved. If you're a saved person, your flesh is not yet saved. Your spirit goes from death to life. That's what's alive in you now. Holy Spirit now dwells your life. That's where you're new on the inside of your spirit. But the Bible says <laughs> every, daily, 
<laughs> you have to help to make, uh, cleanse your mind, and you have to do that and, and guard your heart. These things daily you have to do. And the Apostle Paul talked about his flesh, and he said his flesh could cause him to stumble. And so your flesh is not yet saved. The flesh I have, my body, loves the things of this world. Like a magnet, it's always pulling me toward what it wants, my, 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 my flesh wants. I want this. I want to have that. I want to do this. It's pulling me this way. The spirit in me has got to say, no, we're going to go over here today. We're going to do these things. And there's, and there's a war that goes on between your body, between your flesh and your spirit. And that's why it takes spiritual discipline. That's why it takes good works, because then we can start doing the right thing because we're over here on this side. Maybe someone encouraged me about this, or I learned something to make me a better believer in Christ. That's a beautiful thing. But good works is never the reason you're a Christian. Never. A true believer can be assured they're going to heaven without being self-righteous. But most people, I think in the world, if you said, are you going to heaven when you die? Or are you going to hell? I think a lot of people would say, I'm not real sure, but I think I'm going to heaven. And then the next question I would say to them is, uh, well, how do you know this? And uh, I think they basically say, well, I'm basically pretty good. I'm basically pretty good. I hadn't robbed a bank. I hadn't killed anybody. I haven't, you know, done a lot of terrible, horrible things. But you start going down the list and just naming some specific sins and asking them if they've ever done this or this or this. All of a sudden they say, well, yes. Have you ever done, ever told a lie? <laughs> yes. Have you ever taken anything that wasn't yours? Oh, yes, I've done that too. Have you ever said things and cursed people? Uh, yeah, I've done that too. You ever lusted about someone or something, had an evil thought about it? Yeah. I've had. All of a sudden, you'll find out they're just like us. Everybody's born with that flesh condition, which is attracted to the world, and my flesh is like a magnet heading that direction. So that's why I have to discipline my body. The Apostle Paul said, I put my body under under what? Under the control of his soul, his mind, will, and emotions, under control of the Spirit of God. When I'm under that umbrella, then I can do better at good works than letting my flesh rise up and be in control of everything I am. Then it can be kind of a mess. I need to ask God for forgiveness, repent of that. Doesn't change who you are as a believer, but it makes you a disobedient believer. We used to call it a backslider, somebody that slides back into his flesh. And so that's what we've been talking about. False religion is basically trying, people thinking they've been good enough to earn it. Most false religions teach this. If you go to any Muslim country, they bow down five times a day in prayer when they hear that thing go over the loudspeakers to Allah, and they feel like they have to do that. I have to do that so God will be pleased with me. And they're just trying to work themselves up to some belief that they are okay with their God. It's a lot of doing and doing. The law basically is do. The gospel is basically done. It is finished, Jesus said. It's done. Remember those bands people used to wear that said, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Now go do what he did. Maybe a better one would have been WHJD. What has Jesus done? Now believe that and go live that way. What has he done? The law is about obedience. The true gospel is about relationship. When you read the letters in the New Testament, they're called epistles. 
in some of the books, they're often organized like this. The first part of the book is about theology and, 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 and scripture and how to, how to really live and understand God, who he is in theology. Like in Romans, it's like 1 through 11 is all about God and Israel and Jews and how they can, and, and what, what it's all about. Then the second part of it is how to live. It's because of all this is true and you believe all the right things about this, now you can start doing these things. Therefore, I, by the mercies of God, I give my body as a living sacrifice as a result of all the truth I've learned in the first 11 chapters. And then you read Ephesians, there are six chapters. One, two, three is about theology and about doctrine, doctrine of God, the truth of God. And then when it's one, two, three, and then four, five, six is about therefore how are you going to walk? How are you going to live it out? What is, the, what is the good works you can do as a result of what you believe? And so that's the way some of the books are lined up in the epistles even to understand that. Therefore, walk worthy. So I want to make sure that everyone you've, has clearly seen that you understand this morning what is the pure gospel. And it is the life of a Jesus follower. Discover the purity and simplicity of following Jesus. Once I've accepted him, said and confessed my sins to him and asked him to forgive my sins, I've gone from darkness to light, and now I want to follow him. I want to learn what he did, how he lived his life. What, what things did he say that can help me grow over here on this side as one of his children, his son or his daughter, as we're born into the kingdom of God? That is the pure gospel. So I hope that makes sense to you. And if you want to talk with me about that, I'm available to talk with you further about that anytime today or tomorrow. I'll spend time with you and try to help you clearly understand that. If you've never been sure, or like my friend, Becky's friend, who just said, I kind of grew up kind of in a Catholic church or some kind of non-Christian ministry and just never been sure about salvation, I'd love to, to, to talk with you and help you to be sure by the time you drive your car out of this camp when we leave. I'll do anything I can to help you with that, as well as any of the staff members here would be willing to do that too. So I hope you'll make sure you've done that. We're often prone to forget the gospel, who he is and what he did for us with his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it because Jesus is the center of it all. The whole Bible is about him. It's all about the good news of what God, who God is and what he's doing in our world. Genesis 3.15 is the first mention of the seed of the woman. And all through the Old Testament, there's this prophecy that there's coming a Messiah. All the way, as Jesus looks back in Matthew, all the way to Abraham, and you see his line, his godly line coming up until he will be born. But here's this what's true about Bible characters. The Bible is clear to pretty much tar and feather every one of them of things they did wrong except for just a couple that I can understand. I could be wrong about this. My understanding, the best I understand, when you read Job, you don't see much wrong in Job's heart. And when you read Joseph, you don't see much wrong in his heart. Maybe the brothers would have said, maybe a little arrogance he had. I don't know. But these guys didn't have a lot of outgoing problems and sin like so many of the other characters have. Because when you see these characters in the Bible, you see the good, the bad, and the ugly of almost every one of them when you, when you see stories about them. But when you think about Joseph, he's such a beautiful picture of Jesus. He was rejected by his brothers, and then he wanted to reconcile his brothers back to him. And that sounds like Jesus, who was rejected by his brothers, the Jewish people, in, the, in, his, in his life, and then dying for them to win them back unto himself. And God is not a supporting actor in the story of me. 
the Bible's not just all about me. It's the story of him and how I fit into his story and how he loves and what I should be doing to take his story and carry it forward. And the story of David and Goliath, I've heard people preach it like this, you know, I am David and Goliath is my problems. My boss at work, you know, my husband, people I know, that's my giants I'm trying to deal with and I'm David here. I'll be the hero. But now I don't think that's the best way to preach that story, basically, because there's no greatness in me. The Bible says without me, you can do nothing. That's in John 15. Without me, you can do nothing. So it's not me. It's no greatness in me. It's the God who directed that stone to kill that giant. You know who conquers our giants? Christ conquers our giants. And the Bible's not about me. It's not about you. It's the story of God and it's a beautiful story that our lives can fit into. And that's what's so cool. I'll share it with you kind of a final kind of a deal. In the Old Testament, the people were given the law, but when they were given the law, what they do with it? They broke it. So then a sacrifice was provided for, for them. And then the priests come along, but they kill them too. And they, some of them were wicked and selfish. And then the judges come along, and the Bible says that the last verse in Judges is every man did what was right in their own eyes. They still haven't repented. They just, they would do well, then they would have a backslide in their period of rest and they'd fall into sin, they'd start over again. And you see the same cycle happening seven times in the book of Judges. And everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. And after the Judges, they cried out and said, give us a king like the other nations. So kings they had. And they had Saul come along as the first king, and he was strong, handsome, good-looking guy. They picked him until he messed up royally. He ended up jealous of David, consulted a witch, and ended up committing suicide. And next, we bring in the prophets. But the prophets, people killed the prophets. So you had all, all these things happening in the story of God up until you get into a later thing. And here's what we need. Watch this. We need a better law keeper. We need a better judge. We need a better priest and a prophet. And we need a better king and a better sacrifice. And you know who that's going to be? <laughs> that's going to be Jesus. He's going to fill every one of those things that people were looking for in their life in the Old Testament, revealed to us in the New Testament through one person, Jesus. When you leave this camp you're going to hear this camp sing a song since I'm doing the talk today I got to be in here early in here and practicing the song and boy it's all about Jesus when I watch those kids on this stage singing about Jesus and just lifting raising their hands and closing their eyes and raising their hands it's just like a spirit of worship just fill this whole place when all those counselors were on the stage you'll hear that the last song they sing before we leave I'll never forget the last song I heard two years ago when they were there. Remember that, Becky? It's something just, just into our, we never forgot it. We learned that song and we've had it sung off. We sing it often. So it's going to be a beautiful ending when we do the finale here in this camp, when you see them singing about Jesus, because he is the one. Here's what it says in Galatians 4, 4 and 5. When the fullness of time had come, all the Old Testament days are over, all that stuff is over. Now the New Testament is here. Now Jesus is born, finally. 
When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem us who were born under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons and its and daughters, humanity. You can become a child of God, a son of God, a daughter of God because of what he did for you, not because of anything you did on your own strength. Jesus came to model for us the perfect life of God on earth. And he died for me and he died for you. So you believe all this and the more you believe on it, what's going to happen in your life, hopefully with you, your kids, your family, till the day you die, you're going to grow. You're going to grow in worship and devotion to him. And that's why I love being in a place like that where we can see spiritual acceleration in our own lives and in the lives of our families who are here doing the same thing. And so that's a beauty. So thanks for spending your time and his devotion and your money to be able to come to a camp like this. And so I'm going to pray. I ask you to pray for my brother right now and my family. I, I was the only child for 11 years, and then he came along. Never had a fight with my brother, never argued with my brother. I was a senior in college before he was in the first grade. He was younger than me a lot. He's younger than me. But he's got some serious heart trouble right now. He's going to have to have quadruple bypass surgery, and his heart's very, very weak. My dad died of a heart attack when he was 49. John is 59. So if you'll just remember to pray for my brother John as uh, we'll just kind of follow along and see how it goes. But he's a strong believer. He's a science teacher in a Christian school in Texas, and uh, he and his wife, and they're sweet, sweet people. So that's a burden we kind of had last night when we got that phone call, got that message from his daughter. And so uh, you pray for me, and then I'm going to pray a blessing over you. Okay, extend your hands. Father, for every person here, I pray they would leave this camp knowing that they're saved by Christ alone. <laughs> and how wonderful that is to know you as our Lord and Savior, and that you did it all for us, and that we can rest in, your, in the assurance that you care for us, that you're going to take care of us until our final breath is on this earth. We will be forever with you in glory. So in the name of Jesus, dismiss us and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight today, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen.